This is Thrive Perspectives, an ever-growing discussion about the issues that shape our lives with your guides, Dr. Matthew Jacoby and DJ Payne. Matthew, it is Thrive Perspectives. I think it's our 17th episode and it's a very special episode, this one. I love this one. (laughs) I had the best time in this session. Now, to bring it in, this is this is a whole, we break a whole lot of, um, you know, firsts for our little podcast. Mm. Uh, Thrive Perspectives, even for Thrive Deeper, mm. this is the first time we've had a third person. Yeah. And, I, and I'm, I'm going to do some gloating here. I, I found the guest. I thought you yeah. would be bringing the person. I know. I, that's right. And, and it was such a great session and such a great uh, discussion and so rich. Yeah. So... Uh, you know, get ready. If if you're doing something that requires a lot of conversation while you're listening to no. this, it may not work out. Exactly, exactly. So the exciting thing is, I'll do, we'll do a real real brief uh, bio here, is we've got Dr. Clay Jones here. Now, he's a – I've stumbled across him with interviews on, on YouTube and stuff, and I just love – he's an American lecturer, professor, author, minister, and he is so matter of – Matter of fact, frank about his faith. I've loved the discussions that I've seen of him over the last couple of years as I've got to know him um, online, purely online. Uh, now, as far as all of his, you know, technical, you know, as, as someone who's a professor mm. themselves, Matt, you're a doctor of philosophy. Mm. You got to you got to talk to another guy who's yeah. who's been part of. Uh, so he's he's at Talbot uh, Theological Seminary, and he's yeah. so he teaches theology. Yeah, um, which is. Theology and biblical studies really, I guess, is my foundation in a sense. That's where my original training was, and and uh, and then I went on to philosophy. But I love engaging with people that also, and he's quite because he's quite multifaceted. Mm. So he's quite aware of. Uh, I mean, he sits more in the theology realm, but he has quite aware an awareness of the philosophy and what's going on in our culture. Yeah, and I I love. Uh, I mean. I love people who exegete scripture, but also exegete the culture. It's like something that that I yes. think we need to be doing more. And, and I, he's, he's great at that, isn't he? He, he he's fantastic. And the, and the pleasure for me uh, was because we did this over Skype is to watch you and Clay interact with each other as these two professors. You know, like mm. you can really see an interaction and an enjoyment as we go into it. But I want to want to assure you, please do not worry if you're thinking, oh my goodness, I'm just going to feel like a university lecture. If you know me at all, you know I'm not interested in that mm-hmm. at all. So this is a really enjoyable conversation. Make sure you check out our show notes because we're going to have all the information about Clay Jones, his book that we, we're going to be talking about. Mm. And But to lead, lead us into the conversation, Matt, we're going into the area of death and immortality. Is there some way that you want to set that up for everybody? Well, I... I actually um chose the i mean you chose the person i chose the topic based yeah. on his because i i read his book immortality mm. and uh and it actually really highlighted some things i mean i found enormously edifying it really convicted me about a couple yeah. of things which is great which was what you want and yeah. um and so i know it sounds like a bit of a dark topic and in some ways uh it is but it, it's it's the darkness that brings out the light and and uh what Clay wants to do is to highlight the significance of what Jesus has done for us in bringing about eternal life for us. And so I enjoy this uh, discussion. It's in two parts. Um, so we don't quite get there in the first part. No, it's no, we, we, exactly. we get to the real gospel stuff in the second part. Um, but 
there's some really rich stuff here, so enjoy. Um, uh, Dr. Clay Jones, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on uh, the the show with us. A, a couple of firsts for us for for this podcast. You're our very first guest ever, and you're also our very first uh, overseas guest. So, you know, I thought we'd get another Australian on before we got an American. There you go. That's good. Thank you. Now, pleasure to be on with you both. Now, I've been I've been a big fan of yours on YouTube and on Twitter and, uh, you know, what you do on social media and that for, for a while. You, you've got a very robust, you know, view of Christianity. And I love the fact in your new book, you basically open up your your new book about uh, immortality with a, a, a quote from my favorite book in the Bible, the book of Hebrews. Uh, you go to Hebrews chapter 2 that talks about you know, Christ's death as a human being being the only reason that the fear of death can be taken off of man out of chapter 2 in Hebrews. And once I read that quote right at the beginning of your book, I was like, oh, I'm in. I mean, this is great. <laughs> so uh, where, where, did the, where did the whole concept of writing about this idea of immortality and eternity from a human perspective, where did it come from? Well, actually, I was reading a book by T- Tim Keller, and he rec- he mentioned a book by a Paris philosopher named Luc Ferry, F-E-R-R-Y, and I'm going to read you the quote. Uh, and so in this beginning uh, of Luc Ferry's book, and, and the title of his book was A Brief History of Thought, and he said this, he said, like in like page five, he says, The quest for salvation without God is at the heart of every great philosophical system, and that is its essential and ultimate objective. And when I read that, frankly, I was blown away. I mean, I I really was. I was stunned. I... Now I'm not. I don't consider myself a philosopher. I, I if I'm going to call myself anything, it's a theologian. I got a BA in philosophy, but that does not really a philosopher make. Uh, like I say, I, I I spent most of the rest of my time in theology, but uh, I, I was blown away by that. I thought, what in the world? I didn't know that. I didn't know that the quest for you know, uh, you know, philosophy was about how to die. So I I decided to start looking through what some of the people that Luke Fetty was quoting, and. He quotes indeed, he says, uh, he's quoting Plato, and Plato says, truly then those who practice philosophy aright are cultivating dying for them, least of all men, does being dead hold any terror? And I so then I went on to other philosophers and Michel de Montaigne and Arthur Schopenhauer and, and a host of others, and I found indeed these guys are all saying that really what philosophy is about is how to how to deal with death. And I thought, wow. So then I thought, well, what are the let's start reading what other philosophers say, psychologists, anthropologists, sociologists. And uh, it's amazing because there's a massive trend now in the social scientists and also in philosophy to say basically that uh, we fear death, humans fear death desperately, and that this is shaping. Uh, their entire lives. It's in shaping, in fact, most of these people will say that it's shaping all of culture. And that was amazing to me to sit there and think it's shaping, I mean, they'll say literally all of culture is shaped by that, that if people were not 
that if people didn't think they were going to die and had no fear of death at all, they wouldn't build. They wouldn't build tap buildings. They wouldn't build. They wouldn't invent things. They wouldn't because they just sit around and go, "Hey, I'm not going anywhere. What's the big deal?" And so the, anyway, that was that was really really fascinating to me, and it was also fascinating to find out. Uh, how much you know death really does affect all these people and uh, uh, I there's a poem by Philip Larkin that kind of sums it up and this is kind of shows the desperation of it uh, Larkin said I would have loved to quote him in my book but it's very expensive to quote somebody's poetry anyway very <laughs> difficult anyway but Larkin says I work all day and get half drunk at night awake at four to soundless dark I stare soon the curtain edges will grow bright Till then, uh, I see what's really always there, unending death, a whole day nearer now. And I, I, I woke up, wow, that's amazing. And a lot of psychiatrists and psychologists now are beginning to say, well, not just beginning, this has actually went, gone on since 1974 and when uh, Ernest Becker wrote his book, The Denial of Death, and won a Pulitzer Prize for it. But they're saying, you know, this is shaping human behavior. And then, of course, uh, uh, that wouldn't be enough for me if I didn't have a scripture, and you re you referred to it in Hebrews chapter two, uh, verses fourteen and fifteen. It says that Jesus came to uh, free those who all their lives were held in bondage by a lifelong fear of death. Mm. And so uh, there it is. So the scripture actually, so in this case, uh, I'm not that big a fan, frankly, of secular psychology because most of the time it starts off on a wrong foundation of postmodernism or whatever. But even an old blind sow gets an acorn once in a while. And so, uh, you know, I mean, in this case, I think they got, they, they've gotten stumbled upon the acorn. And I think that's that's really true. As, as Irving Yalom, who's a professor emeritus at Stanford, put it, he says, uh, death is always there. It's always whirring softly and audibly. Almost, you almost don't hear it at all, but it's scratching at some inner door all the time. And I think that's true. It's always there. But, you know, one other last thing about this, it's interesting because as I was writing this book, I'd be walking, for instance, on Sunday morning to church. I'd be walking to church in the morning, and uh, somebody would say, so what are you doing? i said, well, I'm writing a book about the fear of death and how it drives us. And this is just standard. It's still, in fact, still afterwards. Uh, when I say this to people, I go, I don't fear death. Uh, and, and it's always, it's, it's a proclamation. It's not just, oh, I'm not really afraid of death. It's, I don't fear death. I don't. And as I mentioned in my book, and I say, and, and I've decided is that, you know, in the last I've been, now I've been, it's probably the third year that I've been dealing with this subject in depth. I've decided they're not being entirely dishonest because they don't think about their deaths. Uh, they no, don't they think don't. about their deaths at all. Not at all. Uh, it's only when they have a chest pain or when they get a positive back on a blood test, or they find a lump somewhere, then the death, fear of death stands in front of them and won't leave the room. So, so anyway, that's, that's what generated all of this. And it's, it's actually been a very fascinating study. I don't go as far as the psychologists and sociologists do. I don't think it's the result of all culture because we humans were created in the image of God. And because of that, we're not just simply, you know, mo molecules in motion. And it's not just simply Darwinian processes. But I do think that the fear of death is driving most human behavior. That's a really, it's a really interesting thing that came out of your book, Clay, this idea that, and, and I'd like, it'd be nice if you could expand on that a little bit, this idea that on the one hand, 
people don't think about death or try not to. Uh, and yet, on the other hand, it actually is influencing their life in very profound ways. So a lot of the things that we do are... Um, uh, are done because actually we are going to die. And um, so maybe um, I'd be interested for you to expand on that a little bit, like how how death kind of subconsciously, like what are the things that we do and the ways that we behave that are influenced by the fact that we're going to die? Well, I think, yeah, that's a, well, that's what most of the book is about, as I think you gentlemen know. Uh, what people are trying to do is they're trying to overcome death in some way. They're, they're trying through what I, what I didn't make these first two phrases up. They're trying to, through literal immortality projects, hmm. uh, trans, literally trying to live forever, uh, or symbolic uh, immortality projects, and that is that they're going to do something that's going to transcend their deaths. They're going to do something where they go, okay, you know, at least my name will go on. Or, or uh, and then atheists engage in what this, this I think I coined this term, uh, mortality mitigation projects, where mm -hmm. they try to make death into something that's not that big a deal. That doesn't honestly work for them but that is what they're trying to do and like i say it doesn't actually work but so th through these various kinds of projects they're trying to live forever let's let's drill down actually into because i think there's some really interesting stuff there and mm. and actually i was um i was really struck by the the chapter on um symbolic um what what do you call it uh, the, the, the mortality symbolic, mitigation yeah, symbolic um <laughs> immortality projects and because i realized that um a lot of the things that we do are are actually motivated by this desire to live forever it's like it's it's one version of us trying to be gods unto ourselves you know we are trying to um bring about our own salvation in some respect and so i think there's some really interesting things there but let's let's just start um because i think this a lot of people aren't aware of the literal immortality yes. projects. So let's, can we talk through that a little bit first? Um, I first came across this idea when I read, um, I'm not sure if you're uh, familiar with Yuval Noah Harari's book, Homo Deus. No. Um, no. And he, he talks a lot about, uh, uh, he's an atheist and he talks a lot about these immortality projects like the Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh project and so right. forth. Give us, give us a little tour through some ways in which, um, uh, I guess technologically people are trying to uh, find ways towards immortality. Well, you know, it's interesting because the first president of Facebook, Sean Parker, put it this way. He said, uh, because I'm a billionaire, I'm going to have access to better health care. So I'm going to be like 160 and I'm going to have be a part of this like class of immortal overlords. And notice, he says, I'm going to be able to live to 160 years old. And then he thinks, once you do that, you can coast right on to immortality because science will have figured it all out. Uh, I like, I like the, uh, the 
the one hundred, the forty-five-year-old bulletproof coffee founder uh, David Asprey spent a, claims to have spent a million dollars on his quest to live to one hundred and eighty. Uh, to accomplish this, he has his bone marrow extracted from his hips and then has his stem cells filtered out and injected into every joint of his body, his spinal cord, and his cerebral fluid. He intends to do this twice a year. He also takes a hundred supplements a day religiously follows a low-carb, high-fat diet, bathes in infrared light, chills in a cryotherapy chamber, and relaxes in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber. Well, notice he said he's actually hoping to live to 180. Well, of course, we know that. I mean, that's just crazy town. But but that's, that is his hope. He's really striving for this. And then, of course, these guys in the back of their mind think, if I can live to 160 or 180, science is going to have figured this all out, and we're going to be able to then just coast on to immortality. And so, uh, there, it, you know, I don't know that you have whole food markets in Australia, but the thing about whole foods markets here in the United States is they're all non-GMO, you know, grain-fed, uh, anti, they're against antibiotics and on and on, and and the stores are full and of people who are trying to, you know, if they eat right and exercise just right, then they're going to live forever. Well, that's just not going to happen. But but people are hoping for this. Uh, they're thinking that this this if they do all these things just right, they can live forever. But that's just simply not true. Part of the trouble is is people think that uh, they they misunderstand mortal the mortality rate. At, at the turn of about 1900, at the turn of the 20th century, 1900, the average age, the average mortality uh, rate, the mortality rate, I shouldn't say average, that's redundant, but the mortality rate mm. was about 45 years old. Well, today, mm. the mortality rate is 78 and a half years old. And so people take from that, they go, oh, see, we're living so much longer, mm. science has figured this out. And the truth of the matter is, that's just not true. In fact, that's false. Uh, uh, What's happened is, is the reason there's the increase is the decrease in infant mortality, is that you had so many babies dying at 1900 in the early 1900s from infection. Now that that's been wiped out, uh, no, it's not. It's no longer true. I mean, it's just not true. People are not living that much longer. In other words, people that made it through infancy, uh, that made it, let's say, I'll we'll just use a round number, 20 years old, their their average mortality rate was about 78 years old, uh, maybe 77 and a half. It's gone up for about a year, but that's about it. Uh, and so people are like, yeah, they're cheering this on, but really not nothing. <laughs> I've got bad news for everybody. Nothing really happened there. Uh, this isn't going to work for them. Uh, you're not, you're not going to, we're not living that much longer. Uh, and so lit literal immortality in those senses, just, it's just not going to, by the way, one of the most fascinating statistics to me was was uh, if they cured every form of cancer, so there's no more cancer in the world at all, a Harvard demographer named Nathan Kiefitz uh, calculated, this is not an estimate, this is certainly not a guesstimate, this is a calculation, this is hard math, and I looked at it, uh, looked at his uh, journal article, his publication on the subject, this is hard math, if they cured every form of cancer in the world, the average person would only live 2.265 years longer. Uh, so wow. you're, you're not anyway, so you're just simply not going to make it. So the idea that my body is going to live on, it's just not going, that's not going to happen. Mm. Yeah. They actually, uh, and, and, and we're probably getting into the med medical side, so you can bow out <laughs> any point on these questions, but, um, am I right in saying that, that, that scientists actually don't know a lot about what even causes death? Is that? Well, 
you know, as, as Zygmunt Bauman, who wrote on this subject, has put it, he says, what's happened is, is people have broken death down into thousands of little things that you can be useful in doing. Um, eat kale, uh, exercise uh, regularly, um, you know, see the doctor, do this, you know, don't eat GMOs, on and on and on. Um, as I mentioned in the book, there's this, I was at a kind of a reunion for a lot of people, the church I used to attend years ago, and they were passing around this 600-page volume entitled How Not to Die. And it had all one thing after another that these people were supposed to be able to do. Uh, and if they did them, that they wouldn't die. I, that, by the way, I told the one guy that had had the book in his hands, I said, you know, they cured every form of cancer. You'd only live 2.265 years longer. And, of course, he was shocked because most of the book was about avoiding cancer. And, uh, you know, I mean, but it's not, it's just not, you're going to die. But people, anyway, people think that that the reason people are, they've broken it down, you have all these little causes, and if you could solve every single one of them, but that's just not, we're not even close to that. And, and what, some of the more bizarre things that, um, and, and you cover this in your book, and I've certainly uh, heard of this, and, and at first I thought it was just science fiction, but actually people are seriously talking about things like brain uploading. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. This is, and, and, and something called the, singular, the singularity. Do you want to talk us through some of that? Let's start, go back to brain uploading just for a minute. Brain uploading is the idea that we're going to be able to transfer our consciousnesses into a computer. And so obviously if we can translate or, or put transmit, I should say, our consciousnesses into a computer, well, then what's going to keep us from living forever? Our consciousness is just going to go on in a computer. Well, that's that's all well and good, but no one knows even what consciousness is. Uh, and, and the major yeah, brain researchers say straight out, we don't know what consciousness is. We don't know what it means to be conscious. They have no idea. And then one of the things that I thought was kind of the most interesting, in fact, uh, Elon Musk of Tesla and SpaceX, he's now got, it just was in the news like two weeks ago, he's got this thing where they've implanted this chip, I think, in a pig's brain. Um, well, that's a far cry from actually having consciousness go anywhere. But let's just, just go with that for a minute. There's what they call gradual uploading, and the idea would be they're going to replace 1% of your brain uh, let's say every year with a circuit board. And then, and, you know, I mean, after so many years, well, not every year, but every month with a circuit piece of circuitry. And then let's say after a hundred months, they'll replace a hundred percent of your brain. And then you're going to be uh, conscious. You're going to be dead uh, probably a lot sooner than that. You're just simply going to be dead. But, <laughs> yeah, but people, you know, people are hopeful that no, no, it's going to work. But see, if you don't have anything else and, and that's, what's really going on here, you hope that it's true. Now, let me just say, from a if I were a naturalist or or a materialist, someone who doesn't believe there's well, someone who believes that we're just material stuff. In other words, there is nothing. You don't have a soul. You're just material stuff. You're just molecules in motion. Well, I would wonder. Well, maybe if how did this material stuff become conscious? It somehow did become conscious. And if I thought that that was true, then I'd think, well, maybe, you know, we can get a computer to be conscious. But see, that's where it starts with. Of course, I think that's utterly false. I don't for a millisecond 
uh, believe that, you know, um, I don't for a millisecond think that consciousness is material stuff. Uh, your memories of your, let's say, 30th birthday, to sit there and go, that's somehow material stuff, and we could dissect your brain, and somehow when we get really good at it, we could figure out where the memory of your 30th birthday is. I, I mean, it's it's just, to me, it's just, it, this is just folly, but it's desperation. See, they're desperate yeah. to find anything to help them. I think that's a great place to uh, have a quick break, Clay. You've painted the picture really, really well of the desperation of, of humanity trying to live forever and escape death. Let's take a break. We'll come back in a second. More with Clay Jones as we talk about immortality here on Thrive Perspectives. Hey there, it's DJ Payne interrupting this conversation between myself, Matthew, and Dr. Clay Jones. And for some of you, I'm your old pal here on the podcast, but very excitingly, for a lot of you, I'm a brand new friend. That's right, it's a brand new mate here, DJ Payne, and you are more than welcome to this podcast, Thrive Perspectives. If you're here, especially because of Dr. Clay Jones, well, let me roll out the red carpet for you. We're so, so thankful that you have got the finest of all taste to be here because of this absolute legend. I want to tell you a little bit about what we do on Thrive, but I also want to tell you and spruik a little bit for Clay Jones. If you don't know Dr. Clay Jones, he is a doctor of ministry from the Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's also a visiting scholar for the Master of Arts in Christian Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology. He uh, hosted for many years the Contend for Truth nationally syndicated call-in talk show from those uh, talk shows. He did an amazing job debating uh, different talk show hosts. He debated professors, cultists, religious leaders. Uh, he, re he debated people from the animal rights, abortion rights, gay rights, atheist organization. An amazing show. And I think that's why he's so unflappable because of that. And Dr. Clay Jones has written two books. The first book, and that's the book that I first discovered, Dr. Clay Jones, was a book that he released a few years ago called Why Does God Allow Evil? Compelling Answers for Life's Toughest Questions. Fantastic book, highly recommended. But the book that we're talking to him about over these episodes is his brand new book, Immortal, How the Fear of Death Drives Us and What We Can Do About It. It's just been released now, if you want to get all those links, they're in the show notes of this episode that hopefully, depending on the podcast player that you use, you can see them right there in the show notes. But if you haven't got access to that, please head over to our website, thrivetoday.tv. That's thrivetoday.tv. We'll have all the links to Dr. Clay Jones' website, his books, uh, you can even see a photo of Dr. Clay Jones. And also, while you're there, you can find out a lot more about Thrive and what we do. Uh, not only on this podcast that you're listening to, Thrive Perspectives, but you can also hear about our other podcasts, Thrive Deeper, our booklets called Thrive, and all the ministry that we do. We would love you to become part of that Thrive family. We've got all the links there, how you can contact us and get involved there. It's really, really simple. Hey, that is enough from me, your old pal DJ Payne. Let's get back into this episode of Thrive Perspectives with Dr. Clay Jones.
We're back on Thrive Perspectives. It's episode 17, Matt Jacoby, DJ Payne, and our very first special guest, Dr. Clay Jones from California. Clay, you've, you've painted the picture of philosophy, uh, you know, humanity's desire to escape death and live forever. Is there any aspect of that drive that is a good thing, that is a godly thing? Well, I think there. I think it is a godly thing. This, you know, Solomon said that you know the Lord has put eternity in our hearts. Uh, he said in Ecclesiastes. I think that's true. I think people really do want. They do want something more than this life. Uh, as you know, C.S. Lewis put it. He says, you know, if if I have a longing for something that can't be fulfilled on earth, maybe it's because I'm longing for something that's not from this earth. I want something more. But I would just. Point, remind everybody, the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16 ends in, uh, shall not perish but have eternal life, that Jesus is again and again promising you'll have eternal life. And so mm. this is a really good thing. By the way, it just occurred to me that I didn't really, Matt mentioned the singularity. And I didn't address it. So let me just back up just for a minute and okay. just address the singularity. I, I was going to uh, bring us back to that. Uh, <laughs> okay. DJ really uh, rudely interrupted our conversation. <laughs> That's my job here. That's my job. That's somebody's got to do it. But, but see, what science has no clue about how to do this. And it, one of the things that amazed me is how stupid computers really are. Uh, computers, now don't get me wrong, computers can outcalculate me or any human on a, a myriad of things. Mm. Uh, but there's a lot of things they're, they're no good at at all. Uh, for instance, they don't understand analogies and metaphors. They don't, they don't understand them. For instance, if I said Sally is a block of ice, uh, the three of us and your listeners would know immediately what that what we mean of Sally. We <laughs> that we have a very low opinion of Sally. Uh, if when you know, I mean, Juliet is the sun. A computer doesn't understand that. The most con the, what a sun is is it, the, what we know most about the sun is it's 20, 93 million miles from Earth, uh, and it's f burning hot gas. It's mostly gaseous. Uh, so we don't mean that, you know, Juliet is a sun and she's 93 million miles from Earth and mostly gaseous. Mm. That's not what it means. And there's an awful lot of things that computers don't understand is David Eagleton, who's a, a Stanford neuroscientist. And he says, you know, he says, in fact, he's the advisor to the TV series West Wing. He says the technical advisor, he says, you know, he says uh, uh, computers, there's a lot of things a three year old can do that a computer cannot do. Computers, a three-year-old can load a dishwasher, navigate a complex room of different kinds of furniture without falling down, and manipulate his parents. Uh, computers cannot do that. And so, but anyway, so here's where the singularity comes in, is they go, yeah, but one day computers are going to begin to think on their own. And when they begin to think on their own, boy, they're going to start improving themselves real fast. And, and so that's the singularity, uh, yeah. that one day computers are going to think on their own and start self-improving. And when they do that, look out, folks, uh, it's going to be an amazing time. But that's never, ever, ever going to happen. I'm sorry. Yeah. It, going back to something um, that you were saying before about the, I guess, the the underlying assumption behind these immortality projects is this idea that consciousness is um, uh, is a physically created thing. That, that there's there's nothing spiritual about it, and you can see why, given that 
presupposition, the, the presupposition of what we, we might call scientific materialism, um, that, that that's where they would get this hope. Well, uh, if it is just uh, a matter of physical stuff creating consciousness, mm. um, wh- whatever view, and there's a few different views there um, on how that happens, um, well, you could see why they then think that it might be possible one day for us to, you know, things like brain uploading or um, computers becoming conscious, you know, maybe even quanta. I've, I've, I heard um, or, or read da- uh, Daniel Dennett talk about um, yes. uh, quantum computing uh, being the key to creating something like consciousness and the brain being something like a quantum computer. Yeah, well, it's just simply, again, they don't even know what consciousness is. Like David Chalmers, uh, who runs the neuroscience department at New York University, says, and is one of the more famous neuroscientists in the world, he says, we don't know what consciousness even is. Yeah. How are you, I mean, how are you going to replicate something when you don't even know what it is? That's why, by the way, a lot of people are turning to cryonics, uh, that they're hoping they're going to be frozen. And then then because science, look, in our lifetime, and I don't know any, well, that's not true. I guess I do know some, a couple of, of, of uh, philosophers and stuff that think we're going to be able to live on forever right now. Uh, mm. but, but, uh, so, but they're hoping, a lot of people are hoping to just be frozen. And then, and then they can wake them up later, like Larry King, uh, Simon Cowell, Seth MacFarlane, uh, all hope to be frozen or intend to be frozen. I shouldn't say hope, but they intend to be frozen. But that's that's not going to work. I mean, you're just, one, you have to be frozen in the first five minutes after you die or your brain just gets really gooey and moldy. And, well, mold's not right, but it gets mushy. Uh, and, but, but then they have acoustic fracturing events, and that is when organs freeze, they start fracturing. And it's the same thing that's like when you drive drop ice cubes into a, a warm diet coke and you hear it go crack 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 uh, that's what's happening to your brain that's not going to work but see people realize understand something even if there were going to be a singularity that was one day going to figure out how to upload our consciousness it's not going to happen in the lifetime of anyone that's alive right now uh, of course like i say i think that's absolutely impossible that's not going to happen it, there's not a chance of it but but it's, even if it were, it's not going to happen in the lifetime of anyone who's alive today, as much as people though, hope, because they so desperately need to find something that's going to give them um, immortality. Yeah. Qu- question, Clay. And again, I'll put I-, I play the role of the conspiracy theorist sometimes, and I'll put my little tinfoil hat on here, and uh, you know, tune into the Alex Jones uh, show, and and say, well, why is popular culture? movies and television, science fiction, obsessed with artificial intelligence and this singularity. It seems like, you know, since my lifetime, there's just been overwhelming, and it seems to be growing more and more and more and more and more, you know, from the Matrix to the 90s right through to, you know, every other movie these days seems to be about someone uploading their brain into a system or being able to come back. Right, right, right. What is driving what? Is culture driving man's obsession with it or is man's obsession driving the culture? Man's obsession is driving the culture. Uh, People are just dying 
to not die. Uh, and and they're just so their fantasy. If you're a naturalist, and, and as you know, an enough a lot, increasing number of people are naturalists. To define for people who don't know what a natural what you mean by naturalist, define a naturalist to someone. A naturalist is someone who believes that nature is all there is. That's the most mm. simple definition. Nature is all there is. There's nothing beyond nature. There's certainly no God. And that means, of course, there's no God because nature is all there is, um, which a lot of pe- people rightly point out, Christians rightly point out that the statement nature is all there is, is not a scientific statement. That's a that's a philosophical statement. Science does not teach nature is all there is. That's a that's a philosophical assumption but anyway, if you do believe that nature is all there is, if you want to believe that nature is all you, there is, well, your fantasies are going to be Captain America and Spider-Man and Lucy and, you know, I mean, uh, you know, and on and on and on. You're, those are going mm-hmm. to be your fantasies where you're going to somehow achieve immortality. And so people are falling in love with that fantasy and they want they so badly want that to be true. Uh, but you know, in those movies, and maybe we'll talk about this later, have the other purpose of just getting us to stop thinking about the fact that we are going to die. Uh, and so anyway, I happen to like superhero movies, but, but, um, (laughs) I don't, uh, think there's even one chance in 800 centillion, which is a big number, uh, that that's ever going to happen. It's, it's interesting in, um, uh, Harari's book, he talks a lot about the problems, that would be caused by even an extension of human life. So he goes through uh, the impact of even extending a human life to, say, 120, and then he talks to 160 because he, he works off projections that, you know, within such and such a time we'll be able to, you know, live till, you know, by the end, I think it's like by the end of the century or something we'll be able to live to right. 160. And, and But he, he, he talks about the problems that that would cause, you know, and how... Um, uh, how that would change culture and how it would separate rich and poor because such a thing would only be available to the rich. And and it, it looks like um, that kind of project would be really the ruin of civilization, <laughs> according to his projections. Well, I think he's probably right. Uh, I don't see how if people really could live longer and longer and longer on planet Earth, I mean, resources are already stretched thin. How does that work? And I think that the other thing you mentioned, Matt, I think is true is, I mean, you would really have to say you'd have two classes is an understatement uh, because you'd want. But I think the other I think the I think the people that don't have the money to do that would just simply pull the plug on the people that do have the money to do that. They go, no, you're not living forever. We're going to unplug you. There's an interesting Amazon series called called Upload. uh, And uh, it's about a guy who is uploaded. Actually, he's murdered. Uh, he doesn't know that he was murdered, but he was murdered and now, and he was uploaded into a computer, uh, into a computer program. But anyway, I, it's just that none of this, this is just, fa- this is science fiction. And, but people yeah. want it to be true because they want so badly to escape death and they want to escape death without God. Yeah. Let's move on to the symbolic, um, mm. immortality projects. And this, this, I think is uh, for me, actually, this was very poignant and, this is the part of your book, Clay, that really made me think. Um, it and and at one point, uh, it actually really convicted me because I, I recognised, you know, are there things that I'm doing that are in some sense trying to create my own immortality? You know, like 
because there's such a drive within us and, and, you know, we're all on a journey and, and, you know, we're all on a journey from sort of autonomy to, to, to faith and, and living by faith more and more. And, um, and so we find these sort of shards in our, you know, within us of, uh, I guess of, of that propensity towards autonomy, you know, living without God. And, and part of that is this desire to create our own salvation and, and certainly our own immortality. Mm. And you work through a number of different ways in which human beings uh, try to, in some sense, symbolically make themselves immortal. Talk through what some of those things are. Well, the biggest one, of course, is through having children. Having children is a symbolic immortality project, and it's probably the biggest one that's ever been used in the history mm. of the world. In fact, for sure, the biggest one. I'm going to live on through my children. In fact, atheist Michael Shermer put it this way, the, the founder of Skeptic Magazine. He says, we live on through our genes and our families, our loves and our friends, our works, etc. You see, th we're going to live on through these things. Uh, and so... Uh, and and he's not alone. And so, but we think that we're going to be able to live on through our ki children. As Plato put it, he says, marvel not at the love which all men have for their offspring, for that universal love and interest is for the sake of immortality. So here you have, going back to mm. Plato, but you have Michael Shermer, Richard Dawkins has said the same thing. All of these atheists say, we're going to be able to live on through our family. Einstein said, Albert Einstein said, we can live on through our children, for they are us. Um, mm. So this is a major way to live on. As you know, I, I find it to be, you know, I mean, just completely and utterly impossible uh, because of, of several things. Uh, one, what if your kids turn out to be a mess? Uh, you're gonna, I mean, that's not that's not too good a way of living on. I thought I think it was interesting because actress. Jada Pinkett Smith, who's married to Will Smith, said, you know, really the most important thing I've done on this planet is have Jaden and Willow, and I'm very proud of them. Well, you know, I tell you, if you look at Jaden and Willow's lives, and I hope they turn out well, and I wish them be the best, but they're kind of, well, kind of a mess. And uh, Jaden is not sure whether he's a, you know, what is, you know, last I saw anyway, maybe that's changed, but he wasn't sure what sex he was. Um but the here's the biggest thing. The biggest first thing is is just do the math. Your children are only half you. They're only fifty percent you. Their children are only twenty five percent you. By twenty generations, it's point here there five zero 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 point four. Yeah. There's only point yeah. zero five zeros and four percent you. But here it, it gets worse. There could be none of you in shorter time than that because. Uh, genes transfer over in blocks. Uh, you know, there's dominant genes and there's regressive genes. And if yours turn yeah, out to be the regressive, there could be none of you and your children. Uh, but and so, but I've always enjoyed this. Tells you what kind of a you know sense of humor I have, or the kind of person I am. But whatever. Um, but I've enjoyed asking my classes, and I've asked many classes this. I've said, how many of you know the first names of your great grandparents? Uh, and I think. And how many classes I've asked, I don't know how many classes, but I think in all the classes combined of all the students, I think that no more than three students have raised their hands and said, yes, I know the first names of my great grandparents. And then I always ask the classes, I follow up and I say, do you care? No one no cares. One cares. I've, seriously, I've never had a student go, I care. 
Uh, nobody <laughs> cares. And then one girl, one twenty-something young woman, said, put it to me. She said, or to the class actually. She says, "Well, I'm glad they got together." <laughs> well, yeah, yeah or right. I wouldn't yeah, right. exist. There's also right. something very dysfunctional about about that attitude of wanting to live through your children. I, I think it actually causes mm. a kind of dysfunction in the relationship Ooh, between parent and child. Sure. You know, um, uh, I, I was never good at sport, and 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 my son's quite a good uh, soccer player, and and uh, it would be very easy for me to live live out my precariously, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, vicariously absolutely. to live live out that little ambition through my son, and and I feel like. I feel like I, I see parents do that, you know, that they're, they're living out their dreams through their children and, and all the things that they couldn't do uh, that, that they that sort of. And so, so I feel like this, this, immorta- this particular immortality project is, is actually causing uh, problems. Well, I think that's why a lot of kids need counseling. They need therapy because their parents are trying to live through them. And we've all known some parents who are just so desperate. I mean, it's like, uh, I mean, we, I don't know, we call them helicopter parents, parents that just hover over the top of their kids, you know, uh, pastor in our church just this last week used an expression I'd never heard, and I liked it. He says, there's lawnmower parents, and the, and by that he means they're mowing the lawn in front of their kids as their kids go through life to make sure there's nothing that could in any way hurt their advancement. The trouble is on this is a lot of these kids don't then know how to handle adversity, uh, they don't know how to yeah. handle real hardship, but I, I just, this is not going to be successful. You cannot live on through your kids. You can't literally live on through them and even symbolically live on through them because like I say, your genes aren't going to be there and your ki- your kids, kids don't care. They just don't care. And yeah, uh, right. so it's, anyway, it's not going to happen. Gonna happen. B- besides children, Clay, what's other symbolic, you know, drives yeah, for us to live forever? Yeah, there's creating something good. Uh, creating something that's going to transcend your existence. And one of the most famous examples is Homer's Iliad, because we still read. Well, I don't read it, but I've read some of it. Homer's Iliad, you know, I mean, and he wrote that, what, almost 3,000 years ago. And it's still, people are still reading it today. But Homer's dead, folks. Uh, Nobody, Homer's not enjoying the fact that people are still reading the Iliad or the Odyssey. And so there's that kind of thing, creation, activism, Activism, especially here in the United States, activism is a way to live on. And that's why, for instance, saving the planet from global warming. See, I'm go- what are you living on? How are you going to transcend the fact your measly existence here and you're going to die and be buried and worms are going to go in and go out and play pinochle on your snout? How are you going to transcend that? Well, I'm going to save the planet from global warming. And I'm not saying... I'm not getting into the merits of it or not. That's not the point here. But the point is, is they believe that they're going to do something of eternal worth by saving the planet. Uh, And uh, so active, and that's why if you do anything against them, or even the people that are really big into this kind of activism, if you disagree with them, you're threatening their immortality project. Uh, And that's, this, that's just terrible. You threaten their immortality project. Um, and so there's, you know, I mean, creation, activists becoming a celebrity. 
Um, yeah. and one of the, one of this the, one author, he put it, he says, with the decline of Christianity and a decline of a serious belief in the afterlife, everybody wants to be a celebrity because then you kind of, you can go on past your death because you can be kind of Kim Kardashian and, and go on past your death. But, you know, it's interesting to me because I think one of the first real celebrities that wasn't really known for anything else, and most of the people will not recognize, I'm sure most of your listeners will not recognize who this is, is Zsa Zsa Gabor. Uh, a lot of people go, well, who in the world is Zsa Zsa Gabor? Uh, well, she was a celebrity, but I mean, quite kind of a big celebrity at the day, but nobody knew, you know, now nobody even remembers who she is. People aren't, you know, people go, yeah, yeah, but I'm going to be famous. And then you've got the Guinness Book of World Records, right? Which is, I'm going to do something uh, to be in the Guinness Book of World Records. Like there's this one guy that didn't cut in India, who didn't cut the fingernails on his left hand since 1952, and they grew to, I think, 458.1 inches long. His left hand is useless. I mean, absolutely, positively useless for doing anything but getting attention. But in the Guinness Book of World Records, it says, but his dedication has paid off paid off <laughs> i mean he's walking around with these outrageous fingernails but it's paid off because he's in the guinness book of world records one of my favorite ones is the guy who broke the most toilet seats with his head in one minute and the answer is 46 i know inquiring minds yeah. want to know what made him think he'd be good at that I, you know he woke up one morning and said you know what i could be really good at is how many toilet seats i could break with my head in one minute see this is but see notice this is hot dog eating contest anything to just be somehow famous to somehow transcend this this the fact that we're going to die uh that you know weird piercings and tattoos at least people can sit there at least i'm being noticed you know i mean somehow dressing as a goth you know i mean i'm being noticed the world is noticing me because at least in some sense are affecting culture and going on yeah, that's right. And that actually, that, that's something that it does come out of uh, the Iliad. Uh, I think at one point, um, it's Achilles who talks about living on forever, becoming men of renown, you know, right, and, and right, that right, if, right. if we do something glorious and if we die a glorious death, there's a sense of immortality in that. And, and I, think, I think that idea actually comes out of that kind of Greek period, that idea of fame, becoming a man of fame, doing something amazing, and people will tell stories about you for generations to come. And so, and, and actually is re they refer to that as a kind of immortality. Right. Oh, absolutely. Uh, fame, you know, uh, and then there's infamy too. Uh, because the Temple of Artemis of the Ephesians was 300 feet long, 180 feet wide, and about 80 feet high. Uh, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. And in 356 BC, a guy set its wooden roof aflame, and the marble columns collapsed, and he destroyed the temple. And they mm. were the Ephesians were just, of course, horrified because this was considered not only one of the seven wonders of the world. Um, many people that saw all seven wonders said it was the best of the seven wonders of the world. Well, the Ephesians caught the guy and they tortured him to death. He confessed to it easily enough because when they asked him why he did, it, he said, "I did it because I wanted to be famous." Well. They, uh, the Ephesians weren't going to let that happen, so they executed him, and then they 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 did what we late what was later called a damnation memore. And if you anyone ever said his name or wrote his name again, they mm. would be executed. It was on the pain of death if they ever said or wrote his name ever again. His name was to be scrubbed with history. Well, we know his name. His name is Herostratus. Uh, books, plays, 
articles, all kinds of stuff. Even with Helen, Helen Mirren is, was in a movie entitled Herostratus, as a matter of fact. Uh, I mean, but the names of the architects of the temple, who knows what they are? You know, I mean, we have, I don't know if they have this much in Australia, but we keep having these school shooters and they want to be famous. The very first school shooters, you know, that shot up Columbine, um, they did a video before they shot up the school. And they, they in the video, they said, who's going to make the movie on our life? Will it be uh, Spielberg or Tarantino? Uh, you see people, uh, David Mark Chapman, who shot John Lennon, said straight out, he said, I did it to steal some of John Lennon's fame. Notice that if you can't get fame the good way, well, maybe I can get it symbolically the bad way. At least people will remember my name. Mm. We had the Las Vegas shooter here who uh, killed 51 people and wounded 800, 851 others. His brother said, well, he always wanted to be the best of everything, so you'd think that he'd want the highest casualty count. Mm. Notice this is just a quest for fame. And because, see, it takes a lot of work, hard work to do something that people are going to remember you for that's good. It doesn't take that much. It's not so hard to do something that's really terrible and people will remember you for being bad. But either way, you're being remembered, and that's what people are hoping for. It's just mm -hmm. somehow to transcend their deaths. feel a little bit strange leaving clay you know and our discussion in this area mm. we've gotten quite dark over this episode about death mm. and immortality now we've already recorded the entire conversation so we can let everybody know with really uh, you know high expectations in the next episode in yeah. two weeks time it gets a lot brighter <laughs> yeah that's right uh but i think i think what this has highlighted is the fact that there is eternity and as, as it says in ecclesiastes god has put eternity in the hearts of Amen. mankind and there is this yearning for uh, for immortality it seems there's something about death that just doesn't seem right you know that feeling that we have when people die and confronting death it there's a sense this just doesn't seem right like it doesn't seem like it's meant to be yeah and yeah. Uh, you know uh like we, we we're meant to love and we we experience i, I guess that heightened sense of truth in our love and yet when someone dies it's, we feel pain because we loved. It's like, yeah. you know, love in, in some sense is almost like being punished. And so that points to the fact that death isn't something that was intended for us. And, yeah. and there's this um, intuitive desire for more than that. And and in this episode as uh, that we've just heard, as we um, have gone through all the different ways in which human beings have, have um, re reached out for mortality. And, and this is I mean, one of the things that really convicted me, you know, like this... Um, these immortality projects, you know, yep. the desire to live uh, forever and, and the, the sort of micro ways that we do that. This this idea that we have, and it's hard to chase. I'm, I don't know if it's a man thing, a male thing, but there's been so often where I find myself going, gee, what legacy do I want to leave? Yeah. What do I, what, yeah, what do I exactly. want people to think of? And I'm like, now exactly. reading Clay's book and talking to Clay, yeah. I'm like, I would need to repent of that. That's not that's yeah. not the attitude I need to have. That that was exactly my response, <laughs> and and uh, overall, you know, I think it's encouraged me to focus, in a sense, to be able to relax into the present. Yeah. That I'm not called to do some big thing to to make myself uh, immortal, or yeah. or actually, I, I I can relax into what God is doing in my life and focus on the small things, uh, knowing that. Actually, this life is, is to be a consistent series of small steps of faith that lead me into 
eternity with God. Thanks for listening to Thrive Perspectives. We want to hear from you, so send us your big questions and ideas. Our home on the internet is thrivetoday.tv. You can contact us, download other shows, see all of our resources and much, much more at our website, thrivetoday.tv. The Thrive Today Network is on Facebook. Our Facebook page and links to our community groups are waiting for you. Just search and like Thrive Today page in Facebook now. Visiting the website, ratethispodcast.com slash Thrive Perspectives really helps us reach more people. So head to ratethispodcast.com slash Thrive Perspectives. We hope that these shows will challenge you to look at life from a new perspective and thrive. This was another DJP.FM production.